0: is a professor of literature. He has written on, what was it, The Apocalypse in English Literature, didn't uh, he my My doctoral dissertation, which also became a, my first book, was called The Ecstasy of Catastrophe, Apocalyptic uh. Elements from Langland to Milton. You know it's an academic book because it has a colon in the title. Right. There you go. The surest okay. sign. This guy's also an accomplished, uh, Stan Robinson called him one of the best science fiction novelists writing today and uh, he's written a number, a uh, number of novels for uh, Bantam Spectra and a lot of um, well-known Del Rey, and Ace. Del Rey and Ace. And I will leave it to him to introduce what he's reading tonight. I think is going to be something new. It's my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague Howard Hendricks. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. Um, I thought I'd start with some very short things, some poetry. Uh, Poetry. Poetry. Yes. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, I I, I published my first uh, what might be called genre-related poem uh, in Asimov's back in 1995, quite a while ago. And it, occasionally, I, I I just find that that form works for me, and it has kept going. I've been fortunate enough to have a a, a poem just. One of my poems won the Dwarf Stars Award for 2010 from the Science Fiction Poetry Association. It's called Dwarf Stars because it's for very short poetry, all right, so a very short piece. But if you pick up the June 2011 Asimovs, I've got a poem in there too, and so I've kept doing this. And so I'll read a piece, the the first poem very briefly. Um, I'll read uh, the piece that's in the June 2011 Asimovs, which is called Boomer Dog Days. We drink our wine from a corporate satellite. We knock back our cocktails in geosynchronous orbit. We smoke our weed captioned with the date and U.S. Eastern Daylight Time to Sirius XM's 60s, 70s mellow rock, The Bridge, playing almost imperceptibly. And dream we still understand what the space race was all about as one down from the NASA channel, Dish Earth on our TV package, shows to that music... A view of a planet over which an occulting shadow steals almost imperceptibly. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and this is, a, this is a piece that has just been published online in uh, a, a, a zine called Eye to the Telescope. It's published by the Science Fiction Poetry Association. And this is called Maculata. Under the aspect of oil-soaked otter, the sea priest breaks over his heart, his bread of thorns for her. He places on her tongue all the tears of the ocean, transubstantiated to orange sea urchin flesh. She tastes winter evenings on forgotten beaches. The tide, a broken promise, a gentle lie, whispers with a soft hiss, departing. She rises from the altar of waves, heading inland, the sea in her belly. Mm. You, you, can, you can clap. I know it's short. It hardly merits, but there you go. Um, and this piece has just been picked up. has not been published yet. It's going to be published in Mythic Delirium. It's called Babel Before Babel. It's very short. Babel Before Babel. The zoo animals endlessly screech, roar, howl, bray, bellow, bay. I am my keeper's brother. I am my keeper's brother. But the bane of tongues keeps the keeper from understanding a sin more primordial than Cain's. And one last poem. Uh, This is the one that won the uh, Dwarf Stars Award. It's called Bumbershoot. For you Seattle people out there, yes. (laughs) Bumbershoot. Night, a gun-blue umbrella tricked with distant suns and planets, is not to be opened indoors. More bad luck or worse. Hold it to the mind's sky. Finger the trigger in its handle. A meteor bullets the firmament. The universe falls shut with a whoosh. Shake the drops of the stars from the loose skin of the darkness. Think of nothing for which to wish step into a different house. All right, Mm. Mm. right. right. Uh, and I'm gonna do one very brief piece of (laughs) science fiction literary criticism, only a few paragraphs, it's very brief, it's part of an introduction, and then I'm gonna read uh, the first chapter from the novel I've been working on seemingly forever. (laughs) Okay, Uh, but I'll do the, this is actually, um, the very brief piece I'm gonna read here is uh, from, a collection called Visions of Mars. Uh, I'm the uh, lead editor on it with George Slusser and Eric Rabkin. And we have a lot of wonderful people in there. We've got Stan Robinson did an article for us. Um, We have Fred Pohl interviewing Ray Bradbury. Um, We've got uh, Jeff Landis. We've got all kinds of Mars people. We've got all kinds of academics from all over the planet uh, who wanted to write about not, not just... Mars in U.S. science fiction or Mars in uh, British science fiction, but from everywhere, uh, Russia, Belgium, France, everywhere. And uh, just, and the the essays are dealing primarily with the interplay between science and fiction in the way we envision Mars. And so I'm just going to read a very, very brief, very, very brief passage from the introduction. And the the first paragraph really uh, talks about what I just talked about. In this volume, you will find a panoply of critical essays, lectures, and panels. You will find literary analyses here of French Mars, Russian Mars, capitalist Mars, communist Mars, British Mars, and American Mars, to name a few. You will find the Mars of Burroughs through Bracket, of Heinlein, of Dick, and of Robinson, among many others. Most of all, you will find examinations of how these Martian mirror stories reflect the concerns of their authors and the cultural concerns of the times and places in which those authors wrote. The face in the mirror is always both what we see of ourselves and what we dream of ourselves. Through analyzing these dream visions, fictional experiences of Mars set in these authors' futures, we come to better understand the historical role of such fiction on Earth. The end of looking into the funhouse mirror, the tradition of Mars fictions, the tradition of scientific understandings of Mars, and this book analyzing both, is paradoxically to see more clearly, to achieve a more accurate understanding not only of a face on Mars, but also of what the world we already have and have made here on earth really does and does not look like. What makes this mirror particularly funhouse, however, is that it is also a hammer. The statement that art is not a mirror held up to reality but a hammer with which to shape it, variously attributed to both Bertolt Brecht and Vladimir Mayakovsky, inherently recognizes that art is in fact both. As Kim Stanley Robinson rightly remarks elsewhere in this volume, It is crazy and immoral to say that Mars could serve as a quick and easy bolt hole or escape hatch out of the challenges facing us here on Earth. Also elsewhere in this volume, Chalabert is right in in asserting that if, as William Gibson once remarked, SF does not so much predict the future as colonize it, then understanding and critiquing the worldviews we use in our colonizing is a vital action in the now, one that opens up amazing possibilities both here on Earth and on Mars. Those quotes are all good so far as they go, but do they go far enough? Science fiction is perhaps less a means by which the present colonizes the future than it is a means by which the future colonizes the present. As our human worldscape becomes more techno rationalized, more techno scientific, in itself a science fictional process, the role of the present increasingly becomes that of reverse engineering the future from among those futures presented by science fiction writers, futurists, scientists, and other professional temporal speculators. The future is always already present in the present because what the future looks like is increasingly a message which, as a result of our imaginings of it, has already been pre-sent. If Einstein's contention that imagination is more important than knowledge is to make any real sense, it is in the sense that imagination is dreaming with a purpose, a dream vision, a mirror hammer. Only by clearly seeing our reflections in the futures we envision, can we also shape the present into something we might like to see. So there you go. Okay. And I guess I'll read the, I have a collection of short stories, but you can find that yourself. Uh, I'm gonna read the chapter from The the Endless Work, which I've been messing with forever. (laughs) No, it's the, it's, it's called The Fastness of Slow Wisdom. Uh, and fastness is in the sense of mountain citadel, not velocity. Um, but it's called The Fastness of Slow Wisdom. So here you go. Dead Station. He could not say how long he had stared at the dimly glowing lights of deep power down. Red cyclopean eyes spaced widely about the ceiling. Before his mind, rusty with too long disuse, groped those old words out of a vast, fog-bound darkness. Along the way, it shoved aside other dusty words. Hyberspace, cyberspace, his own name. Ishmael Arthur Morel, I-A-M. I am, like Ian, one letter off to his friends, or William, without the will, to those less friendly. However few of them there may have been in either category. Yes. Muscles which had long forgotten their purpose cracked across his face in a smile. I think, therefore, I am that I am. He sat up slowly on the slide bed and waited a moment, dizzy from head-rushed blood. In the red semi-darkness, images slowly came back to him. The slide bed, snug as the plunger in a hypodermic needle, inserting him into the hyper tube to the fading music of small motors as he fell into long sleep. Carefully, gingerly, he swung his legs over the edge of the bed. From some very distant time, he seemed to remember that he had always been slow waking up, and not just because the slide bed in his particular hybrid tube had always had an annoying tendency to stick shut. He seemed to recall always waking up from long sleep hungry, but not this time. He put his feet on the ground and stood. His muscles and joints screamed their own long, dull, buried scream at being called back into service. He heard nothing, and his heart began to pound in the silence. His thoughts quickened. How long have I been out, he muttered, more to hear his voice against the endless quiet than from any other cause. His voice cracked, dry and brittle as desert driftwood. Hello? Anyone here? What's going on? Not even echoes came back. Fear gripped his throat. He took a deep breath to calm himself. The air was stale, but still breathable. He looked down at his feet. Reduced gravity, but gravity nonetheless. The station must still be spinning, at least. Slowly, he began to move about the hibernatorium, not spacewalking, but moving with the shuffling gait of someone suddenly old, someone feeling foot by foot the way through a darkened house, anxious not to stub a toe on death or trip on the bottom step of heaven. The bottom step of heaven. He grabbed at more memories, grunion in the night surf of the sea of forgetfulness the space elevator, the great work. He and his fellow shelf lifers had other names for it, the stairway to heaven, Jacob's ladder, the babel elevator. Memories, not of dreams, but of something before sleep, flowed back to him as he shuffled along. He remembered the last vid post he sent before sleep, explaining to his mother that shelf lifer and time parter were slang for what the company called protective hypersleep punctuated by work status revivification. The company, Sandalfon Technologies, builders of the space elevator on which he had spent years working, until the bosses said it was too dangerous for human crews and had the bots take over most of the finish work on the Babel structure. He tried to remember why. Eventually, he wrestled another slippery fish from the oblivion ocean. The word was, if there was to be any hope of preventing cosmic radiation from making human crews cancer-perishable, it lay in the shielded, deep-sleep storage of shelf life. Yet, for all the safety talk, he knew when he was being reduced to part-time, prepped for pensioning off, another obsolete star-jobber. The long sleeps and short wakings of time parting had been disorienting enough, he thought, shuffling under the low-power emergency lights toward the comm room. But this playing the ghost haunting an abandoned space station, this was already far worse. Working with the communications suite, he thought he managed to get the system on, it hissed with dull static, but across the whole spectrum in the direction of Earth, no signal came out of the white noise. Maybe power was too low to pull anything in, but it still perplexed him. In the pearly glow of a power-on indicator, he saw a penciled note addressed to him. He bent to read it. am I hope you find this and can read it. The space elevator is dead, nothing up or down. Everything has crashed on Earth, too, but there's no place else to go. We tried to take you with us, but the damn slide in your tube wouldn't open. We couldn't budget, no matter how much we tried. We left the last escape pod for you, programmed to take the long way to Edwards' spaceport. None of the rocks are hanging over it, so your descent and landing should be clear, thank God. Try to get home again. We'll wait for you at Edwards as long as we can. Kara. After a time, he at last remembered Kara, a short, dark woman, always willing to listen to him gripe. He felt a pang of remorse that he hadn't spent more time listening to what she might have wanted to say to him. The words she had written were clear enough, but what did they mean? What had killed the elevator? What had crashed on earth? Why the long way home? What were the rocks and what were they hanging over? Speed shuffling toward the docking bay where the escape pods were housed, he cursed the station's designers for relying so heavily on cameras and screens, now all dead and for safety reasons, allowing only one porthole window. It was on the way to the docking bay, at least. What he saw out the window brought him up short. The station in geosync orbit at the top of the elevator some hours earlier must have crossed the Terminator into twilight and darkness. The lights of Asia from Singapore to Siberia should have been plainly visible, but there was nothing, no light at all. An alarm sounded, low and long, from a dimly remembered training session, he suspected that, despite its solar array, the station's power storage systems had degraded and were failing. How many years would such a power collapse take? What, was that why his tube had sprung loose his slide bed at last? The station giving up her not yet dead, even as the station itself began its death throes? The alarm became more insistent. No longer caring what he might bump into or stub his toes on in the red twilight of the abandoned station, he broke into a flat-out run to the docking bay. Jumpsuiting into his environment gear and popping down his helmet, he punched open the pod's access door and climbed inside. Easing himself into the crash couch, he pulled the release lever. Explosive bolts fired, followed by maneuvering rockets, then by full burn. He shot down and across the Eurasian landmass, the long way home to Edwards. What he saw below him aroused his worst fears. The dark side of the earth was well and truly dark, no light showing anywhere. The starry night had reclaimed utterly its sovereignty over the once bright cities. The calm suite in the pod confirmed what the dull static of the calm room had already signified. The planet below him was silent indeed. By the time the earth below him was in sunlight once more, he had glumly concluded that the same situation, not only of global power outage, but of massive human disappearance, too, must prevail in the daylight hemisphere as well. A world once thoroughly overpopulated was now apparently just as thoroughly depopulated. Good God, what had happened? He had long supposed that dominion over the earth was a delusion of grandeur, but he had not expected that to be proven in his own lifetime. How long might that lifetime be now? Was the massive human disappearance, in fact, a massive die-off, How many millions, how many billions might already be dead? How many still lived? How much did he really know of any of it just yet? The abstraction of numbers, either vast or small, provided little comfort, for he could not avoid making personal all that appeared to have happened. Was his mother still alive? What about Kara? What about everyone he had worked with on the space elevator construction? What of his estranged brother, his cousins, neighbors, And school friends from childhood through high school and college to the time he graduated from that higher school of Sandalfon's Orbital Construction Academy. How many of them were still alive? Any? Unbidden, the words oblivion, oblivion, told in his mind like like distant bells. He pushed them away, back into the still too vast sea of all he could not yet remember. Mostly out of a concern for staving off the messiness and disorder of emotional relationships, I.M. had been something of a loner most of his life. As he felt toward Earth now, however, he slowly became aware that his vaunted solitariness and rugged individualism was not so different from that of his countrymen when it came to their society, to their government. When times were good, they just wanted to be left alone. But when times were bad, they didn't want to be left alone. He felt both more alone and more not wanting to be alone than he had ever felt in his life. Lost in melancholy thought, as the pod's stubby wings caught on the thickening atmosphere, it took something extraordinary to jolt jolt him from his dark reverie, but jolt him it did. On the final approach to Edwards, he saw a rock over Las Vegas. At least a mile across, perhaps four miles tall, a stone shaped like a cosmically large fossilized dinosaur egg hung suspended and, apparent and apparently motionless more than a mile above the city, over which, and into the desert and mountains beyond, the enormous floating stone cast a vast shadow like the gnomon of a great disjoint sundial. His mind tried to paste descriptions onto it. Mass extinction-sized asteroid or meteor halted in mid-air a moment before impact egg-shaped, gravity-defying, plutonic mountain levitated against time and space like something in a painting by Magritte. Flying island of Laputa, stone UFO, a screaming stopped amid the sky, suspended in profound silence. Mute stone god, returned from long absconding. None of those captured the thing itself. He was not shade-tree Shakespeare enough for that, nor was he meant to be. Hadn't Carr's note said rocks, plural? Was this the only one of its kind left? Were there still others? What phoenix might rise from such a vast floating stone egg when at last it warmed into long-delayed fireball? Had creatures winged in fire already hatched from other stones floating in other places? Had they somehow caused the disappearance of civilization? Or were they the products of that disappearance? How he wished he could run a search in the infosphere for this too concrete hallucination, troll for its name in the net that was also the ocean. But no, both that net and that ocean were gone together, and he suspected might have been of no use anyway. Falling down the desert sky like sunset over the last stretch to Edwards, another pang shook him, a sudden yet deep sense that he bore some responsibility, some guilt for the great sky-hung rock he was looking at. But that was impossible. When it all happened, he was sleeping the long sleep, just another part-time star job, already forgotten. As he flew away from the hanging mountain, however, he knew in sure premonition that, like a tiny iron filing under the influence of an enormous lodestone, he must be irresistibly drawn in the direction of its mystery again. What's the title of The title of the book is The Fastness of Slow Wisdom.